Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and return Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today and you listen on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, be sure to head on over and leave me a five-star review and let me know what you think of the show. Speaking of five-star reviews, I would like to give a big thanks to Mick Min Emily, I think that's right, who says podcast suggestions five stars. I love this podcast. I'm finishing up my senior year of college and getting ready to apply for the Peace Corps. I love hearing everyone's stories and advice. It has been huge in helping me decide that Peace Corps is something I want to do. I would love to listen to a more specialized podcast from someone on blogging slash sharing their experience with folks back home slash communicating, etc. I'm a journalism and public relations major, and I would love to hear more about how I can use my skills to share my future Peace Corps story. I would also love to hear the positives and negatives of joining right after graduation versus working for a few years prior. What do employers say about taking time to volunteer when you come back and start applying for jobs? One more thing, the process of writing books about Peace Corps stories. How do people write books about their service? It seems like such a daunting task. Well, Emily, your suggestions have been heard, and I will do all of those. It may take me time, but I will get around to it, especially about writing books. Given that I wrote my own Peace Corps story, I think I know a thing or two. Without further ado, here is episode 40 of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. This is, this is, this is, this is my, my Peace Corps, Peace Corps, my Peace Corps, my Peace Corps story, story, story. My name is Joseph Bracho, and this is my Peace Corps story. Hey, Joseph, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Tyler? Doing very well and excited to hear your Peace Corps story. Uh, you were one of the first people that reached out to me, I think, maybe before uh, the podcast had actually launched, if not soon after. And sadly, I have this big, giant, long list of people who are interested in telling their story, but I have to kind of balance it. I want to make sure that I you know, have different countries, different continents, different decades. And yours was one that I, I always saw on the list and felt kind of bad, but I, I led off with a volunteer story uh, from Niger. And I was like, well, I, I, want, to, I want to tell this story uh, because you actually ET'd, and there's a lot of backstory to that uh, as well. And which makes uh, your story interesting. And then we have some other crazy stuff that happened along the way. Uh, so, yeah, I'm just excited to finally have the opportunity to help you tell your story. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to have the opportunity as well. It's a great, uh, great platform. Well, thank you. Well, unlike myself, the listeners uh, don't know your whole backstory. So start off by telling everybody a little bit about Joseph, your background in the United States, where you served in Peace Corps, and what exactly you were doing there as a volunteer. Okay. Uh, well, I'm originally from Connecticut. Uh, I grew up, you know, from a young age through high school uh, on the East Coast. Um, I hadn't had a lot of uh, international experience uh, up until, you know, college. I studied abroad uh, when I was uh, in my senior year of college. 
Um, and you know, that was the first major experience of being out in the world on my own, uh, as a young adult, as opposed to being, you know, chauffeured around or any sort of, um, oversight from adults. So that, uh, kind of opened the can of the appetite of what I wanted to do post peace or post college, which was going to be Peace Corps. Um, mostly because I think like many people after college didn't quite know what I wanted to do. Uh, but I did know that the experiences I had had abroad, were some of the most important, and I wanted to continue to expose myself uh, to that sort of lifestyle and that sort of understanding of the world. Uh, so the idea of joining Peace Corps was really hot on my list of things to do. Uh, little did I know that the you know the, the interview process and the application process were so rigorous. Uh, so it ended up being quite a bit longer uh, after my college uh, time to actually join the Peace Corps, which eventually I started in uh, 2007. Uh, in Niger. And tell us a little bit more about the work that you were doing. Uh, you say you're a natural resource management agent, but what does that actually mean as a volunteer uh, living in your community? I see. So, well, I came in uh, part of the AgNERM group, which is the agriculture and uh, natural resource management grouping. Uh, and the focus is mainly on really on agriculture and on um, income generating uh, projects that are based around plants. Uh, there is a lot of focus on the, um, the health aspects in terms of, you know, eating uh, nutritious foods, having access to more types of foods, healthier foods beyond sorghum and millets, which were sort of the main subsistence foods of the villages for the most part in the area I was in. So a lot of the focus was sort of diversification concerning um, diet and then also about how to earn and raise money for a village using plants that would grow in the environment that we were placed in. And did you have additional side projects outside of uh, the main stuff you were doing? I know volunteers usually uh, try to, to fill their time. They're used to that faster pace of American life. Yes. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, everyone that I was, you know, uh, that I was in country with, we all sort of had to branch out because if you had a project in mind, implementation always took quite some time and you felt like you were often just sitting on your hands trying to figure out what you could bring into your village and also be open to what your villagers asked from you. Um, and a lot of that focus was simply on, you know, people would go in with stars in their eyes about how they were going to save, you know, this group of people from these situations. When you realize on the ground that the reality of uh, what your village asks for and need is much different than what you're necessarily trained to do or why you think you're there in the first place. So I worked on some small projects, um, you know, some education projects, hand washing projects. Um, and then one of my first major projects actually was to, um, it was at the, the will of the women's group in my village, uh, the women's leader, A.A., she was a, actually became a close friend, and she had proposed getting a grinding machine uh, for my village because the women, basically from sundown to sunup and sunup to sundown, were just pounding millet. Um, and, you know, girls that were quite young, between like seven to nine even, were, were pounding millet. And by the time they became older women, their hands were just, you know, sort of gnarled. And they had lost a lot of usage just because of spending so many hours and so many years pounding millet. So that became the main focus, actually, for my first project, uh, which I was able to raise the funds for uh, through donations in the United States. And then um, I was able to implement the project by building uh, a house to house the machine, uh, get all the materials necessary to put the machine in, cement the machine itself, 
and then also educators that teach people how to use a machine, um, setting up the financial system in terms of uh, how payments would work within the village, meaning that the women who lived in the village itself, uh, the village was called uh, Zorare Tekeshuart. So the women of Tekeshuart, they would have their millet pounded for free. And then the other hamlets that surrounded the village would pay a small fee um, to have their millet pounded. And then what that money was used for was a revenue stream basically to help um, with uh, health for the children, getting medicine, foods, and other necessities for the, the women and children of the village. Okay, awesome. And how, how big was your village when you know you t- toss out village? Some volunteers have villages that were you know thousands of people, like mine. Uh, was your yeah. village uh, small, medium, large? Like, what, what exactly was a village for you? Uh, so my village was quite small, actually. When I first was placed there, it was I was told that it was a village of about 350 people. But um, I think I would say at the highest I had only ever seen, you know, and that was including weddings, um, maybe 100 to 200 people. But for the most part on the daily, especially during the hot season, you know, it was down to maybe 70 or 80. Wow. So when you say village, it's what you know many of us in the United States would consider a neighborhood. Yeah, it was it was tiny. Um, you know, there was one functioning well uh, when I first arrived in the center of the village, um, and that was pretty much enough to provide for the entire village and animals. So it was quite small. Mm-hmm, definitely. Well, now that we have a good idea of your service of where you, where you were living, what you were doing, let's move on to. Uh, one of your favorite memories as a Peace Corps volunteer? Uh, when I sort of ask that question, you know, a favorite memory, do you have one that readily comes to mind or maybe a, a flood of them that's hard to choose from? Yeah, I mean, so as far as a memory goes, it's hard because there's many beautiful specific moments. But um, one of the, the best memories in terms of a, a general feeling for me was, um, well, there was a period I was I was placed in this small village, and I was I was taught to speak uh, Hausa, which was the the language of the village, or was supposed to be the language of the village. But it was actually the second language to almost all of my villagers. First language was uh, Tomashek, and you know I was I had taken a brief three day or four day course in Tomashek uh, during um, you know the my my service there. But all the conversations that were being held between villagers were done in Tomashek. So I was at a great disadvantage in terms of um, my, my language learning and my, my cultural integration because when they were speaking together, I didn't know what they were speaking about um, and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't chime in or ask questions because my house was already, you know, I was in the learning phases when those, within those first six months to a year. And uh, when the people speak together, they speak in Tomashek, but I didn't have any bridging language. I didn't have uh, any French speakers in my village, nor did I speak French or English speakers. So there was no overlap where I could uh, use associative language to try and learn more. So the that was very difficult for me at the beginning because I didn't know how to integrate or even to ask people to speak in house of when I was around uh, in order for me to learn because I was already having such a hard time, um, even at the learning phases, of picking it up. So it was it was difficult then. There was a, a very specific moment somewhere uh, near the end of my first year uh, that I really remembered that I started to the villagers started to speak in Hausa uh, when they were around me, and they would speak together in Hausa when they were around me, and I was able to understand and communicate. And it got to a point where I was able to hold my first uh, work meeting with a large number of villagers, 
And I felt for the first time at that point, like I had really touched home uh, with my village where I felt like I could joke and be sarcastic and make uh, and have these interactions that felt light and easy where language was no longer the struggle. And I didn't feel any longer like I was an outsider in the village. It was it was hard to define as a specific day, but it was very much a, a moment when that became my reality where I felt like I was at home in my village. And that was probably one of the more beautiful moments I had personally in my, my experience as a volunteer. Well, thank you for sharing that. That definitely uh, resonates with me as I, you know, struggled to learn uh, languages I was serving. And I think it will resonate with many other volunteers, uh, current or returned who, who are listening. Now, on the opposite side of that, uh, you know, I ask what one of the least favorite memories of Peace Corps and I'm really interested to hear the details uh, of your least favorite memory because, uh, you know, you provided me with two sentences that just leads to so many questions that I have. So can you uh, tell us about your least favorite Peace Corps memory? Yeah. So um, sometime into my second year, uh, a friend of mine and I, we decided to go on a little um, whirlwind trip, a two-week trip uh, around the coast of West Africa. And uh, so we took a bus from Niamey, Niger, to uh, Cotonou in Benin. And it was a very long bus ride, a very uncomfortable bus ride, and a really sleep-deprived bus ride. And the evening that we arrived, uh, we had (laughs) planned on staying at a small hostel in the city. And uh, so we got off of the the bus, and there was two, um, you know, motorcycle taxis. Uh, you know, so we, we hop on the back of one each and we've got big backpacks on and we're holding bags in front of us and being basically carted over to this, this hostel. And at some point during the nighttime drive, uh, we're through these small roads down inside this city and they seem to get a bit turned around and we can see the hostel on the other side of the, the two lane, you know, highway that we're on, but we're blocked off by some cables or some wires or something. We can't get around it. And while we're sitting there on the road debating what to do, this motorcycle pulls up next to us with three guys on it, and the guy in the rear just jumps off and grabs my friend's bag and tries to pull it out of his hands and pulls him off of the motorcycle, and he starts, you know, he starts hitting him as hard as he can, and the guy just won't let go of the bag. And then I'm yelling at the guy to pull forward because I'm quite a ways behind him. And I go to get off my motorcycle, and as the I, I'm getting off, the guy just revs the engine, and he blows past my friend and the guy attacking him. And all I see is a guy running towards my friend with a machete raised over his head. And I just scream at the guy to turn around. He turns around and drives back, and my friend is just standing there in the street. Bag is gone. Guys are gone. He was okay. No one was injured or anything, but it was a really intense first you know, 20 minutes <laughs> on our vacation. Uh, that was, that was quite scary. And at the same time, um, you know, we, we came out of it unscathed he had lost his camera, a few books and some things then, but that was a, that was an interesting start. And then we went to bed that night, said, forget Cotonou, this is too insane. So the next day we just got a ride down to the coast and, uh, we had uh, one day where we were sort of settling in, uh, to a hotel where we were sleeping under Palapa on a little mat under a mosquito net. And uh, we went out that afternoon, and uh, we just went to a local restaurant. We were having some drinks and food. And uh, these two guys came and started talking with us. 
Um, and they were, you know, they had uh, very good English. They were talking about their parents being um, educators in the town and that they had known some other Peace Corps volunteers. And after a few hours of spending time with them and talking, they invited us to their parents' house for dinner that night. Um, I was feeling a bit wary at the time already because of what had occurred just the day before. Um, but my friend, you know, he convinced me, he's like, you know, this is really like an, an opportunity and this is sort of the Peace Corps thing to do, which is to, to touch base with human beings on a local level and have these genuine interactions, you know, develop into maybe friendships or relationships. And so the idea was, okay, you know, let's, let's go check this out. It seems like a nice thing to do. And uh, so they met us at the appointed time at our hotel and we took a bush taxi north, which is basically any car that you can pay to drive you somewhere. This is what we consider to be a bush taxi. And we drove north about an hour and then we took some mopeds about another 45 minutes into the bush and stopped at this little uh, roadside bar slash kiosk. They sold like rice, cigarettes, and some alcohol. And we were sitting down there with these two guys having a, having a drink. Uh, it was called Soda Bee, and it was basically a mixture of uh, palm wine and grain alcohol. Uh, and these, this girl brought out four shot glasses. And so we each did a shot. Uh, we said cheers. We did a shot. And then that was probably about 10 p.m., I'd say. And then I woke up uh, in my bed at the hotel at 10 a.m. the next day, and I have no recollection of what occurred between those two moments. Um, so it was about 12 solid hours. I had a muffler burn on the inside of my calf. Uh, my wallet was gone. My camera was gone. All my money was gone. Uh, same with my friend, though his camera had already been stolen the day before. Uh, luckily, our passports were at the hotel. But we were pretty out of it for the whole next day. We took the gendarme, which is the military police, back to the uh, the Palapa we had um, stopped at. They stonewalled us, so we never had any resolution on what happened. Luckily, all our fingers and toes were intact. Uh, neither of us had been you know, hurt or touched that we were aware of. Uh, so it looked like a good old-fashioned robbery. But that was a pretty intense, intense experience. Uh, especially to start sharing with you know my Peace Corps liaison and boss, and then also with my family and friends at home. That was an intense one, but we, we also lucked out really well on that one uh, in terms of not being injured. And then the rest of the vacation was actually fantastic after that point, but I guess it could only look up. Wow. Well, <laughs> well, well thank you for, for sharing that amazing story. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't even imagine... Uh, you know, what was going through your mind when you woke up and like, oh, wait, where, where, okay, I'm back in my hotel. I was just at a bar uh, and and having uh, done shots of uh, that like grain alcohol from uh, the palm, palm liquor. Uh, yeah, that's just one too. It was crazy. I was so confused. Yeah. Uh, but that stuff is so much like jet fuel. You could definitely uh, easily hide drugs in there. Uh, so yeah. I, 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 I see how they did it. Uh, but glad that you, you know, you made it out okay and safe and you did lose your camera. So you only had a, when I asked for photos, you only had a few photos, uh, to share with me, but, uh, more important than those photos, uh, you, you made it out. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully. Well, I guess on a, a much, uh, lighter note, uh, what do you, what do you miss about Peace Corps and your time, uh, as a volunteer? Well, actually, I, I, I think on that a lot. Um, I would say there was there was something, I mean, Peace Corps Niger, Niger was one of the, the poorest countries in the world at the time. 
Um, and there was something, you know, poverty is poverty and it's painful on a lot of levels. Uh, but there are aspects to poverty which uh, relate to sort of the, the simplicity of, uh, of normal life, barring, you know, difficulties with health and obviously money struggles and all these things. The general day to day, there was something so calm um, and also uh, tranquil in that that simplicity of daily life, which was to you know, wake up, do what you had to do to live and to provide for your family and to provide for yourself. The simplicity of uh, the camaraderie that's that's built between the people that are uh, suffering through something that doesn't quite necessarily um, feel like a, a splinter of suffering. It's more of a general understanding that life is difficult, and life is painful, but you know, the humor that evolves from that sort of simplicity, the kindness that evolves from that sort of simplicity, and the interpersonal relationships that evolve from that simplicity were really something um, that I, I cherished at the time. And uh, I reminisce on often because, you know, in the, the Western world, there's so much involved in daily activity that interpersonal relationships become uh, sort of these little diamonds that we have to, like, cut out time for. And that we have to cherish. And if, you know, you know, you have a, a weekend where it's not as fun as you'd like or you have a, an experience that's not as enjoyable as you'd like, you kind of feel like you've lost a moment or like, oh, that was my one opportunity to feel good. Well, you realize these people are living in these environments that are so harsh and so painful, so difficult that they're uh, they're not escaping their pain. They're they're participating in the pain and they're doing it together as a group and doing it in a, in a village. And they're making it work where that pain doesn't become uh, a, a remorse or regret. It becomes part of a life that becomes fuller because everyone acknowledges the difficulties are there and yet they develop relationships and ways of seeing the world that move past them. Um, so I do miss that aspect of interpersonal human relationship uh, that, that spawned from something that's seemingly difficult, but really is, its beauty is in its simplicity. So that I say I, I, miss, I miss a lot um, and I wish to find ways to incorporate that sort of being together uh, in a in a way that's uh, relevant to to our our moments now in the Western world. Uh, well said, uh, definitely uh, much better said than I ever could have. And how are you trying to bring that into your life now in the United States? That simplicity and appreciation of the moment and the community in, in which you find yourself. Yeah, I mean, often it's really through, for me personally um, and, and my wife, we, we enjoy hosting a lot and uh, and cooking and making food. And there's a tendency towards um, potlucking, which is nice because people want uh, to, you know, experience different tastes and different things. But the idea of hosting fully where you're taking care of food, drink, and entertainment for a group of people for an entire evening where the only thought people have that evening is, you know, the conversation and the, the enjoyment that we're having and basically allow people to feel at ease in a space where they don't have to do anything to be to participate. They just have to show up. Um, and there's something in that level of simplicity um, that allows for a sort of uh, integration of uh, socially where you don't have a tit for tat. You're creating come and be and not asking for anything in return except for the, the quality of conversation and people being together. So that's how I would say I, I try to integrate that into my into my life. And I'm hopefully we'll be able to incorporate that more into my life. That's something that I've been trying to find find ways. So I'm gonna borrow that from you and you know try to 
have have that sort of you know communal offering of food and drink and bring my friends together and uh so I, so thank you for that encouragement it's actually been something that i've been thinking about and talking about with my girlfriends so hearing you say it is just sort of a an affirmation of of conversations that i've been having independently before this interview with you uh, which is nice nice well now i guess let's address uh the sort of the, the big question or the big topic of uh, ET. So you were, uh, you say you were forced to early terminate. Uh, for those who don't know what ET means, we're not talking about uh, the alien. Uh, we're talking about early termination. And you say it was due to bureaucratic issues uh, and that your you know project uh, that you were working on was given to a, a new volunteer, fellow volunteer in her village. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about that. Like, what was the project exactly, and what were these bureaucratic issues? Um, well, the the project itself was really going to be a fairly major project. Um, I had raised quite a, a lot of money in the United States to serve towards this project, but basically, the attempt had been to create um, two seventy meter by seventy meter plots that were going to be dedicated fields, one for um, a women's garden that would include moringa and uh, other, you know, vegetables, tomatoes, lettuce, um, things to create a women's garden. And then the second plot was going to be dedicated to trees, um, major subsistence farming trees, which were like um, gum arabic. These are income generating trees because they have a they have value outside of the local areas, you know, within major cities, and also for export. So gum arabic, uh, mangoes moringa and a few others of that nature and the idea was to have these two large plots um they were going to be fenced in uh with barbed wire fence um two wells dug and then uh purchased a of a donkey cart um to help move uh, basically materials back and forth between the gardens and then the next chapter would be basically working with uh various ngos out of coney uh, which is the region I was stationed in, um, to come and do um, uh, education programs about the trees, about the vegetables, about farming in general, uh, and then also to have oversight basically about the, the building and planting in the farms themselves because it was such a large-scale project. It wasn't something I was expected to be able to do alone. Um, so it got to the point where all the materials were purchased, um, uh, Wells, a well was dug, um, we had actually dug 70-something post holes and put in and cemented in posts for the whole first 70-by-70-meter uh, 70 70 plot. Um, and I had some friends actually come and help me with that project and villagers involved. And that was just, you know, uh, took uh, quite a lot of manpower and a lot of effort to get those in. Um, and then, and you know, there were some levels of, um, of difficulties that came up within the village itself uh, concerning someone had donated the field um, initially, uh, someone who was a, considered a bit wealthier in the village towards the project, and then they had changed their mind and decided that they wanted to get a certain percentage or a certain amount of anything that came out. And so that was being dealt with. Uh, it was more of a, you know, that was an internal sort of power struggle within the village itself, but it was being managed. And I had um, my, my boss, um, she came in to help me sort of mediate that issue. And that was all in the works. And then, it was a rather strange issue. Um, there's a couple of facets involved. I'm trying not to get too too detailed on them, but um, 
there had been some issues with the uh, with the bureau at the time concerning uh, the director and the expectations uh, on the volunteers concerning what Washington thought we were or weren't doing or what we should or shouldn't be doing. And then also because the, this director had been fairly new, I think there was a certain expectation to sort of revamp uh, the, the inner workings of Peace Corps Niger. Um, and one of the main focuses had been on the hostels. In uh, Peace Corps countries, some that are considered to be hardship countries, we're allowed to have a uh, Peace Corps hostel, which is basically an oasis within whichever region we're uh, located that we can have uh, basically an area or a place that's our own um, to you know have meetings, to recuperate, to celebrate together when we have when we're all in from the village for specific reasons or issues or blah blah blah. Um, and so the hostels are a difficult thing because you know there are some volunteers that have very difficult times uh, integrating to their villages and have difficult times setting up projects. And so they'll be at the hostels more often because their village life is, you know, particularly difficult and maybe it's just a mismatch or maybe it's, you know, personally they're having issues with being in Peace Corps. So it's a bit of a tricky situation because there are certainly abuses of the hostel. Um, and I would say that in all honesty, there's times in my service where I was probably there, you know, more often uh, than was helpful. Um, but there is also the reality of, you know, just being in this tiny village and having difficulties in the beginning, particularly with integration. Um, so you feel a lot of isolation. And then when you go to the hostel, you're around people who speak your language and know your culture. And you feel sort of you get this re-energization or re-energized to, you know, go back out and try again. Um, but I would say that uh, this this was one small part of things, but basically what occurred was um, there was a, an anonymous, supposedly anonymous email sent accusing, uh, I think it was up to 11 volunteers over several different regions of various infractions. Um, and what was interesting was that the Bureau took that information and decided that that, that was exactly what had occurred. There was no... Um, you know, interfacing with the people accused, it was just taken at face value that this was happening. And then immediately there was uh, repercussions uh, because of this anonymous email. Um, and I don't want to go into other people's stories, but some of them were rather outlandish, the accusations that were being made. Um, and some of them were just were baseless in the sense of there was no way to prove what was said. So I found it difficult when it came time that these, repercuss these repercussions were put in, in, uh, in place, which were basically to each of the volunteers that you had to admit fault for what the accusation had claimed. Um, and then you had to spend the remaining months, I think it was, um, I can't remember how many months it was, one or two months uh, in your village without leaving. And which... Ultimately speaking, it would have been no problem, except for the fact that my project was so far along, I had gotten to the point where I was considering extending another six months because I had a lot of effort put into this project. I had a lot of momentum put into the project. And the idea of having to spend a um, straight month or two, however much it was, without being able to leave and work with the NGOs and work with the people uh, that were coming to do the, the project work in my village, suddenly my project would just go belly up. So it was I was put in a difficult position of continuing the I had four months left. So I was debating, you know, because I wanted to extend suddenly this issue that came up, this accusation that came up had um, taken that away. There was no chance that the, I was going to be allowed to uh, 
extend my service. And then I was put in a position where I was either going to have to spend these next months with a failed project or and also admit fault to something that I didn't feel had been uh, properly addressed. And the reason I say properly addressed is if I had been, say, at the hostel uh, more often than I should have been, the initial um, response to that is to have a sit down with the, the person who's the volunteer who's running the hostel and say, hey, is something going on in your village? You're having a hard time. What's what's the problem? Is there a problem? And, you know, um, what can we do to fix it? That's usually round one. Now, at this stage of the game, I had been really deep in my project. So this accusation, I, I'm not sure from when it had come. Maybe it was earlier in my service, but it wasn't relevant to the period of time and the work I was doing then. So I felt a bit blindsided by it and also a bit uh, dejected at the idea that at face value with, uh, with no, um, you know, no digging into who made these claims and no proof that I was suddenly being subjected to these repercussions considering uh, there was no proof that A, that it occurred and B, without any um, concern for the project I had going on. So this was difficult for me uh, on a lot of levels. And that's not to say that, there, you know, I don't want to say that whatever had occurred in me eating or these, these um, the way it was handled, I'm sure that the director was handling it to the best of her ability at the time. I don't have a personal issue beyond the fact that I felt it was just a, um, it was more about how things looked on paper and very little to do with the work that was being done in my village. So when I attempted to defend my position, I wrote a very formal letter concerning the project I was working on directly to the country director at the time um, and then asked for uh, a conversation. To, I just asked to speak on the phone and actually discuss what's going on because I felt like you know, I didn't want to lose this project. It was a, it was a major project. Had, it had so many um, beautiful applications after my service was ended for the village itself and for the surrounding villages that it didn't feel um, – uh, fair to me at the time to have it just go belly up because of this. And I wanted to have that discussion. And um, I was I was not given that opportunity uh, in a pretty um, uh, direct way was told that I didn't have a voice in that. And there was going to be no defense. It was either I signed this letter admitting guilt and that I agree to this, this lockdown, or I can uh, face administrative uh, repercussions was the, the, the term they used. So that was, that was a really difficult time for me. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. And for me, I mean, we talked a little bit b- before we started the interview and I, I always question, you know, when someone says that they, they ET'd uh, be- because they had to, you know, that they were sort of forced out. Cause sometimes you hear these backstories and it's like, well, no, Maybe it sounds like you you were at fault a little bit, uh, but but you know there is the there is no way for you to actually appeal and, and sort of challenge it, and you you, know, you went through that. Uh, but you know, in in your case, it seems uh, like you really were kind of forced out. Yeah. Well, the problem for me was I wasn't even bothered so much about the accusations and all that. It was just that even if um, I just wanted to complete the project. That was really the main the main thing was like it had it was already going so well and, and you know of course there were challenges which I was facing and working on and it felt like such a such a um, strange and unnecessary reason to lose it and for my village to lose out on that project because of this email. It just seemed so trite and I I just couldn't I couldn't accept in myself that the project would fail because of this. 
And the issue was because, like you said, there was no appeal process. I couldn't, there was no way to change it. There was nothing to do. I didn't have a voice and I didn't have a platform where I could, I could make a defense or at least ask questions like, you know, who's saying this and why? And does it matter that my project will? However, when I did make the decision to ET, which was a very difficult one, but ultimately, you know, it, it, it moved towards the rest of my life and the things that came afterward. But I was able to to pass that project on to a fellow volunteer. She was more recently in country and she was able to implement it in her village, which made me in the in retrospect very happy that it didn't go to waste. So that was really the most important thing. So my ETing was really a smaller part of the fact that it did succeed in the end and people benefited from it. So that was really the most important. Well, that, at least that's good to hear that the, the project didn't end with you and was able to continue. Yeah. Before we close out the interview, is there anything else that you would like to share uh, with the listeners of the My Peace Corps Story podcast? Um, absolutely. I would say um, it would be, you know, I do it as often as I can, but to uh, encourage people to look into joining the Peace Corps, I feel like the only people that I tend to speak with about Peace Corps and relate to about Peace Corps are people that have been in the Peace Corps because for the most part, you can't really share on a, on a visceral level the experience of what it's like to do the Peace Corps. And of course, the countries themselves offer different variations as well. But I would say that um, people who have been in it advocating for the Peace Corps, you know, depending on your experience, whether good or bad, uh, just having people know about the opportunity and know about the reality of the, the changes in, um, and evolution that it can, it can make in a single person and also in the people that you are working with in your host country. Um, so I would say advocate as much as possible for this program because it's really something that I think is worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. And you know, as you can assume, I, I completely agree. Well, in closing the show, I'd like to ask if uh, – you have or someone has a favorite uh, quote or local saying to share. Do you have one to share with us, uh, I'm assuming maybe in Hausa or uh, the other local language uh, that you kind of learned or were forced to learn? Yeah. So I would say the, the, the phrase that I liked the most, that had the most application to, to my service was really, it was a simple one, which was Saihan Kuri, which simply means have patience. Um, and I realized that what I took away from Peace Corps was really that ability to have patience in the turmoil of daily life and the strangest of things that you can't expect, knowing that things don't always go your way. Having patience is one of the greatest tools uh, that I, I brought out of Peace Corps with me. And so that phrase, Sai Hankuri, has stuck with me uh, since my service. Sai Hankuri. Yeah. Well, Joseph... Thank you very much for spending some time with me to tell your story and letting the listeners know a little bit more about your service, where you served, and the the difficulties you went through. I mean, one in Benin, the being robbed, drugged, and then eventually the the whole uh, eating and, and all of that. Uh, I think the listeners uh, of this podcast will get a lot uh, out of your story. So I thank you for taking the time to share it. Thank you, Tyler. And thank you for this platform. I really appreciate it. And there you have it. Another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast to make sure that you receive a new episode every single week when I release them. Until next time, remember, every volunteer has a story. What's yours? What's yours?